0: The subject for this evening's talk is the personal and the impersonal. I think we begin to see when we look around in the world that we are participating in the tremendous emphasis in our society on the personal. And the personal meaning the concern, preoccupation with self, with me and I and my. And this shows itself in terms of the personal in a variety of different ways, some of which I would like to touch and explore upon with you this evening. And And I think part of that emphasis in a culture preoccupied with self shows itself in the variety of messages which get extended to us through the days of our life which encourage us to be very much self-preoccupied, self-concerned. And we then, with this emphasis, and in a way, this indoctrination which takes place. What we notice with ourselves, we look through the world, through the perceptions of self. We can't help but see the world and the things that, which, going, uh, which are going on around us through how it relates to myself as a person, as a human being existing as a particular but it also shows itself, too, in the preoccupation that we have, too, with personalities and the cult of personalities. And this cult of personality and personality worship shows it and reveals, too, another self-preoccupation. And if it's not oneself and a particular sphere and circles in which we move, it, it's in other spheres and circles and whole magazines are devoted, in a way, to the cult of personality. And we find in ourselves the, as it were, sometimes the, the excesses of curiosity about the, the details, the intimate details of some other personality's lives. And there's, it's a huge market for it, huge profits are being made by the media, squeezing out the, 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 the juiciest, dirtiest, most unpleasant character-assassinating event out of that person, publicising it as widely as possible in the name of um, freedom of the press. And it kind of feeds in, I feel, to this obsessions that we have with personality and the worship of, of it. It also shows itself just as much and equally, of course, and there have been recent, very much understandably recent concerns in, in the world of religion, and particularly in recent years, both East and West, traditional and contemporary religions, where some of the, the leaders, the preachers, the gurus, the swamis, and uh, the like, have in a way... Fallen to some degree or other into some area of disrepute, and there have been activities which have raised the eyebrows of plenty of people sometimes right over the top of their head the the <laughs> the information which has come to light and it's all too easy in the um, looking into these things to to come inside of ourselves, I think, to a very, I think, equally distasteful sense of self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness in, in which we kind of want to disassociate ourselves from the some of the more um, unpleasant and perhaps unanticipated aspects of human behavior and we tend then to project onto other people People the way they are, and once again it feeds. I think, and it and it gives support to this the cult of personality, the generating of, of uh, self righteousness, and sometimes too. Not only it's that kind of self righteousness which, I think, sometimes shows itself in a very simplistic view of human humanity. Of, of our life, of our of our inner life and other lives, and one of the ways that that sometimes shows itself is in the quick one-line judgmental statement that we make, the dismissive statement, the uh, preaching of self-righteousness. And I think we have a great deal to look at in this relationship that we have inside of ourselves and the relationship that we have with what is taking place around us. And instead of the hard, one-line, self-righteous statement, I think we have to change that to a degree that says, let me endeavour to understand what is taking place, even with minimal information. How a person acts the way he she, they, I do. Let let me work to understand what is happening. And sometimes, as in a situation here, just in the two or three days of, of being here, the way that a person's personality manifests itself amidst and through the silence very easily gives rise inside of us to that hard, judgmental voice, which forms an opinion, and that opinion becomes so fixed, one becomes so assured of the standpoint which we make in looking at a personality, that each time we see that person, what do we see? We see the judgment. Simultaneous with its arising, the opinion is there, and we don't know the difference between the opinion and the arising of that person in our eyes or in our ears. We think they're synonymous events. We think the statement about is the truth. This is personality obsession, personality preoccupation in which we don't endeavor to understand each other. And we do that with our political leaders. We do it with other political leaders. We do it with gurus. We do it with people in authority. We do it with our friends. We do it with our children. We do it with nationalities. So sometimes one of the things which we notice is that, as we were speaking last night in the inquiry, the harsh critic, the harsh harsh judge coming in Forming a view, adhering tenaciously sometime to this view, with that self-righteousness which feels so assured of the truth of the event of the person of the situation. And peculiarly enough, though in situations like here, we discuss and explore the the the, 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 the critic the, the, the negative disparaging, condemnatory kind of critic. And when we don't understand the critic, we are just as easily likely to put aside the critic and drop the critic altogether, swing, as I've said in previous talks, swing to the other extreme, and in the other extreme, create a conspiracy to perpetuate exploitation. So sometimes, and I hear on uh, retreats and out of retreats, a lot of information. Information about religious authorities, East, West, North, South, it's rather irrelevant, really. And like many of you in the circles that you move in, I uh, for whatever reason, move in various circles and get the ears of various friends and meditators, and they say, "Did you know that um... <laughs> Then you can just fill in after my long breath. And one he hears these. And sometimes one hears this information east and west, north and south, sometimes from the devotees. And I think sometimes what has taken place is that the critic, we should not judge, lest judge, lest judge, not lest ye be judged, or whatever it might be. The critic has been completely put aside, and one has instead submitted rather blindly to that particular figure, that group, that set-up, that organization, that cult, or whatever. (coughs) And we've swung, the mind has swung from one way to get rid of the negative critic and opted for the pleasure of positivity. The pleasure, the satisfaction of looking up to. The feeling of somebody better, superior, knowing, clear, enlightened and all of these odd concepts. And in that What happened to the critic? What happened to that inner voice when one saw heard something and it raised some question inside of oneself and one sniffled the critic away very, very quickly? It's just my judging mind. And that has happened a lot in recent years and it's generated a lot of pain because the person didn't understand the immense value of the critic. And opted for the pleasure of positivity, regardless of the evidence, regardless of the information. All put down in a license in the name of freedom, instead of unresolved personality problems. Unwillingness to acknowledge. And I think we have to use our that voice inside of us. We have to have to be res- respectful of that, and also listen to the, the kindly voice as well, the understanding voice, the, the the voice inside of us which says how easy it is to be pained in life, to get caught up, to get stuck, to have areas of our life which were not especially clear about we're not especially wise in. And to acknowledge that in ourselves and equally to acknowledge it in anybody, and I mean anybody, anybody, that we meet. Otherwise, we live in the the mythology of of the ideal of perfection of a human being. And as, if I may say, a person who's had the um, immense joy Privilege of uh, life, of religious life, spiritual life. I've said again, and I'll say it again, just to keep it current. I have not ever met in my whole life anybody who I would remotely think is perfect. <laughs> now that could be. Oh, Christopher is just a negative critic. There's going to be. Because I think to be human, in the fullness of human humanity, in the fullness of personhood, in the fullness of being in this world, is such a vast thing to be human. The regions of the mind are so profoundly deep and, and, and expensive. No amount of endless meditation, insights, explorations is going to put all of that package of called life my life together in such a way that every little crease is going to be ironed out there's just nothing but the flowering of perfect wisdom, perfect harmony perfect knowledge perfect communication, perfect presence not even getting remotely close to it and because We have ignored the obvious, refused to accept this. We have created between us a a conspiracy of certain individuals and they have become the fallen gods and goddesses. We set them up. They conspired into that situation. They crash, we crash. And many a tear has been Shed, I may say, in the one to one interviews with myself, in small group meetings, and in other situations over the fallen idols. Many a, many painful tear has been shed. Many a terrible disappointment in life. A grief, sometimes greater than the grief of a parent or a deeply loved one. And I mean it. So thinking and looking at the personal, this preoccupation that we have, I think we need, need a spaciousness, to be circumspect about the modes of relationship and contact which we have with other human beings, and that includes all human beings from whom you and I learn and, and have much gratitude and appreciation. Never to take that gratitude and appreciation to a state of... of uh, of um, envy and upliftment and and put any human being into the laps of the gods. The cost is incredibly high. When we look at our personality in situations like this where such themes of present may not be uh, an occupation of mind for us, but in the same way, I use the outer in a way because sometimes I think it shows a little bit about how we relate to the inner as well. It's not so different. And in that respect with the personal, there's, there in the days that we have here, sometimes we are in the process of meditation, rather unfortunately, building up the idea of, how I would like to be, how I ought to be when I face my mind, when I look at myself. And and we keep experiencing that dissatisfaction which says, the state of my mind is not good enough. And if I do this, whatever it is, longer and better more concentrated, more mindful, more whatever, then I can make that shift and make it better. And not only can I make it better, I imagine, make it better, get it better, and even more ambitiously, keep it better. (laughs) There are some people who have been meditating here for five years very regularly. Those of you who are new to this, talk with them. (laughs) (laughs) Be sobered up by the experience. (laughs) And those of you who have meditated for five years, talk with those who have done ten years and 10 years, 15 years, and those, I think we might, uh, and we're down to the one or two now, people like Christopher, 20 years plus. Ask. So sometimes we bring the social models, evolutionary models, into focus, and in that we expect, we anticipate, we would like the continuity of betterment. It's something which has been generated out to us with tremendous social force. And I say, meditation is not about betterment. It's about being honest. It's about looking directly. It's about seeing what we do with the present and the way that we compare from the standpoint of our personality the present with the past. And how mischievous that can be. Because sometimes, as you see here in yourselves, we compare the present with the past, we imagine, we're comparing very objectively, in a very detached way. Well, now today I was like this, and a couple of days I was like that ago, and a year, five years ago. And we think it's somehow we've, we're, we're, we're viewing it like, um, like we had a macrocosmic view of things, rather than, what's the feeling which I'm experiencing now? How much is this feeling of comparing yesterday with today, yester-year, yester-decade with today? How much is the present feeling actually a significant influence in shaping the judgment? So sometimes the feeling occurs, and we look at our personality and it's a very pleasant feeling. We say, ah, things are getting better. Because I'm feeling good today, it's getting better. Because it was worse yesterday. When will they ever learn? So so I think it was worse yesterday because there was the unpleasant feeling which was arising yesterday. Today, it is a pleasant feeling. I'm feeling better about that. Therefore, progress progress is unpleasant to pleasant i'm not sure i'm just not sure sometimes we look at our life (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to, to avoid taking all this personally <laughs> sometimes we look at our life and though we have appreciation for the pleasant feeling the pleasant sensation when it emerges in our personality sometimes you and I well know that some of the deepest learning that we have had is in the painful not in the pleasant the meditation is not about the transition from unpleasant to pleasant it's about being with and exploring what's going on and sometimes in the midst of our difficulty in the midst of our pain in the midst of the most wretched form of confusion sometimes it's in all of that that we really learn something and sometimes the pleasant actually obscures that opportunity for learning so I don't think you and I need to use pleasant or unpleasant feelings as a measurement for any of this the other which I just touch a little bit on is what concerns me uh, equally. Is the de not the impersonal, but depersonalized world in which we live? A depersonalized world seems to me one which, in many ways and forms, doesn't give acknowledgement for the person, for the humanity of a person for the feelings and the, the, and the structures and the, the totality of the person. And that shows itself in different ways. I'll give you one small uh, example of this. I was just speaking uh, recently to a person who is working in uh, uh, for a, a wine uh, company in one of the, the valleys, some way uh, north of here. And he said to me that he's married, has two children, and his home is provided by the company that uh, he, he is working for. And he said a number of times in the week there are a committee meeting taking place. And he said sometimes the person who was there earlier in the week is, no, is no longer there. And it's quite a large uh, place, large project. And he will ask what happened. And this person, through some disagreement or uh, conflict or whatever, has been told to leave. And has got 48 hours' notice. And the person, the family, have been evicted. Not only the loss of job, but the loss of the place as well just like that, without any consideration. The depersonalization of humanity in the name of profit, in the name of authority, in the name of so-called economic realities, this is depersonalizing. The, the cruel treatment, and I hope nobody here ever inflicts with the authorities that many of you have here anything anywhere approaching such brutal insensitivity. And sometimes the depersonalizing, the insensitivity, in in the kind of mind when we get so fixed in our view, sometimes it shows itself in the force of the will. Remember, this is to ourselves, and we have to look at this in the context of a retreat, as well as with others. The force of the will to force ourselves or others, to fit in to a programmed idea of what he, she, we ought to be doing. It depersonalizes. And sometimes a religious life has lost the spirit of exploration, of joy, of wonder, of the, the, the mystical sense. And to substitute for it this forcing people into a stereotyped model and has said to you and has said to I, we have to fit into it. Only then can we make progress. I think we have to protest about it. It's depersonalizing. It's not giving consideration to the humanity of the person to the needs of the person. It's not addressing the deeper feelings of the person because the ideology, the method, the technique, the form, the structure is is an imposition. And it it loses its creative potential through the imposition of it. The other day, Henrietta and I were... What was the name of that street where the concrete building was that way? Oh, right. Henrietta and I, when we arrived here, we arrived in late evening and staying with our friend Dan over there. And the following morning, I was uh, Henrietta and I were en route up to um, Telegraph Avenue, as I mentioned to you. This is my uh, uh, annual pilgrimage. And Henrietta and I walked up, walking up College Avenue, and we were walking past this very large, Bland concrete monstrosity, it's the only way I could think about it, and huge high building. And I said to Henrietta, This surely, in a street where there's some lovely buildings and some lovely architecture in some of the houses and that in in College Avenue, I said, This particular building, as we walk past, huge, great, much taller than this. block of concrete I said this surely has to qualify as the ugliest building on the planet no other way I could think about it I'm sorry I have to be so fixed and we walked past this building and I turned around to look at the front of it and it was a church (laughs) right that was it it was called the church of the holy spirit (laughs) and I never saw such a dispiriting building in my whole life. (laughs) And what has happened between the inner and the spiritual and the creative and the imaginative and the, the joy and the freedom of that, that something goes on, it gets obscured, and one ends up with this concrete matchbox. What happened? (laughs) So I think sometimes the outer and what we experience in the world, in the outer, in a way, ends up depersonalizing, 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 depersonalizing. So, you know, again, the exploration of looking at Personality, looking at depersonalizing and the manifestations of that in our world, and how we can do it with each other just through one harsh, unnecessary, uninvestigated judgment on another person. In the meditations, the story of self the story of I, of my, also rises. And in its appearance, in the expression of it, the activities, rather understandably, in which we engage, the sitting, the walking, the eating, the washing of the face, the small groups, the one-to-ones, the toilet, the whole flow and rhythm of the day, the appearance of self, arises with tremendous frequently and varying degrees of strength and intensity in relationship to what we're doing. Understandably enough, we're interested in looking at ourselves. we're interested in the appearance of this I and my which is arising. With its appearance there, the object, as such, the breath is an object, the body as an object, The sound as an object does appear in the normal conventional sense of things to be related to me. I am listening to the sound, I am observing my breathing, I am um, noticing my body and the events that are taking place in my body. So in a way with the sound, with the sensations, with the breathing, then the sense of I, mind, me appears with all of that. We say, oh, this is how I am. Then we notice some of the responses that are taking place. We notice some of the reactions that are taking place with the breathing, with the sounds, and with the body. And then we would say, perhaps, ourselves, oh, this is some aspects of how I am. This is some aspects of my personality, which mostly is familiar to me, arising in connection with the breathing, with the body, with thoughts, with listening or whatever. And so here I am, I appear in the world but I don't appear like a an utterly different entity. I appear with the sound, with the breathing, with the sensations, with the other people around me. Oh, here's my world, it's coming into focus and I as a person come in with it. I wonder whether it's an opportunity for us, instead of just responding and thinking this way again and again, whether we can regard things a little bit more impersonally. I don't mean impersonally so, uh, in an um, insensitive way or a cold way or an indifferent way. Impersonally but heartfully in a way which says I don't need to be so concerned about my personality structure. I don't need to be so concerned about the personalities of others. I recognize that those are taking place. And I'm not so interested in having things just as I would like. And I'm looking impersonally, which means my sense, my attitude, and the um, way of regarding things is more, this is life and show it's showing itself. This is an unfoldment, this is an expression of, of, of life revealing itself. So it's kind of less of a concrete I and my to whom all of this is happening, and more it's a certain kind of freshness which we bring to it. Uh, look, at the, there's this confusion taking place. Here my, my mind is wandering. It's wandering all over the shop. Wow, look at that. Look where it, look where it goes. Yeah. The, 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 the earth isn't big enough to, to cover the areas in which it wants to go. It creates all new sorts of extra realms because this world isn't good enough, so we'll have some new ones. Go on a trip out to the stars, beyond the stars. All, all of that as it were, goes on in the interplay of the events which are taking place. And so can we just view that in a rather impersonal kind of light, that that it's happening, we're heartful about it, we're acknowledging it, we see that the daydreams and the fantasies are just as authentic experiences as seeing another human being. It's not like that out there is the real world like the scientist's will preach to us. But it belongs to the totality of things as much as my fantasies and my daydreams and my ideas and my perceptions and my opinions or whatever. It's all belonging to it. Sometimes, <clears throat> in the work that we are doing, the idea of I, self-arising, and with its, aris- with its arising, we imagine, and we, we are blessed and cursed simultaneously as human beings with imagination. It's our greatest friend and it's our greatest hassle. With our imagination, we imagine that I can do a lot for myself. This is really excesses of imagination. And I get this message, I internalize it, I give it a belief, a support, and then I bring it into the meditation room, into the walking, that I can do a lot for myself. When I carry this situation, this thought, into the situation, then I kind of relegate everything which is happening around me to secondary, these Blokes and people and women and 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 the, the, the donkey and the plane flying overhead and uh, whatever and Christopher and Henrietta and Fred and the others, Eric and whoever it might be, all yeah, that's all secondary because really I'm on a soul expedition, not S O U L, S O L E. I'm on a soul expedition. And if I can, if the others would just shut up for a few minutes, I'll just be able to organize myself (laughs) to get it right. And we give supremacy to self as being the vehicle to organize our life and to get it going the way that we want. And we believe this because we have been told it. We have been told this. We've been told from most authorities. I don't believe it. I don't think self, I, has that amount of influence as we imagine. I don't think we are the shapers of our destiny destiny, as we are led to believe I don't think we are the shapers of our destiny as we are led to believe. Sometimes I have said, you don't don't have them in the United States. It's a tremendous loss. That is the milkman. (laughs) The milkman. In England, one of our few, probably the only decent tradition we have left, that the milkman <laughs> comes regularly at dawn to deliver the, the milk. And I would say, if, the, if you had a milkman, and he or the postman or the lady who delivers the, the bread or whatever, the, the goods, was to come into this facility, couldn't speak any English whatsoever, never heard of the word mindfulness meditation and all that we discuss and simply participated in the, in the atmosphere when we sat she or he sat when we walked walked, when we ate ate so the self in that person uh, hypothetical but the self in that person doesn't really have an organized, focused view of what I want from this experience. Because there's no instruction, there's no reference, there's no direction, there's no communication. The person can't talk any English and doesn't know what to do. But the person said, "I'll just participate in the atmosphere." in the silence, in the presence of others, and just be part of that with self, just, as it were, put aside. I wonder what that person's retreat would be like. I wonder if that person at the end of the retreat was asked, how were the days for you? Not understanding a word. How, how are the days for you? I wonder if the report of that person's experience would be any different from anybody else's. Yet the self of memory, of knowledge, had no idea what to do. So I see the atmosphere, the supportive nature, the companionship and the presence of other the immeasurable kindnesses and the stillnesses which are generated between all of us, the willingness of self to participate, the totality makes it, not the self. The whole and the way universe comes together to make it happen and self has very little say in it. Very, very little i think these things are very valuable and important not only for us in these times and days but also in the if we live so long in the latter period of our life when the the sensations of old age begin to uh, touch upon consciousness a little bit more frequently when we can feel the, the certain stiffnesses of movement, when the energy is not as it used to be, when the health is not as continuous as many of us are blessed with having at the present time, then I think the, the personal and the impersonal and the understanding of that might matter a great deal to us. And I think it would behove us to really take interest in a, a perception of life, a vision of life, which is not personalizing so much, which is really cautious about that engagement in I and me and my and my life instead of life. And I think in the latter period of our lives when you and I, come to uh, leave this world and our our time on earth uh, reaches its completion. If we're just looking from the personal I am going to die, we're just viewing in that way it might be that it will bring out of us a great deal of fear if not terror because the self, the personal doesn't want to die. And sometimes, there, of course, there is huge reactions to life and very understandably in intolerable situations. But generally speaking, we might say, the self, the I in me, I don't want to die. And if there's some other more expansive view, more impersonal, in that gracious sense of impersonal, then We perhaps might understand that we truly are all in it together, every single living creature of the earth, everything which has its being on the earth, that we are all in this life together, we're all partaking of it together. And that the processes which you go through are the processes which I go through, which my neighbours go through, which people of all of the earth and the animals and the creatures all partake of the same processes, and to have a, a, a sense, a, a, a perception which is just greater than the I, and to to feel in all of that the the the, the wonder in them and the. And the extraordinary mystery of it, what it is to be living to be h- human, to touch the earth Ajahn Damodoro, one of my old teachers sometimes he would just come into the, the Dharma hall in the evening and just move his hands like this just goes very slowly to the air, through the air and just get the, the monks and the nuns, sometimes two or three hundred of us, just to move the hands through the air. Just feel the extraordinariness of that movement, just the sensations of it, just the consciousness, you would say, it with the air, touched by the air. And these things we, we share, we partake of together that in the whole of our humanity, and it would be a great pity if, in our life if we just focus so much and so restrictedly on self and we miss the opportunity for a, a greater, bigger sense of things. And there is that opportunity for us here to acknowledge the movements of self, to explore those, but not in a way that says, let, let me look at the bigger picture. Let me really bring that into awareness. So when our life draws to its close, as it will, and we never know what time nor what day, that perhaps in all of that there will be some sense of, not necessarily preparation, but some sense that, that our life has its place and has its usefulness and has its presence in the scheme of things and that somehow somewhere inside of us in that we say yes that's the way that it is and yes it's uh, appropriate that in the scheme of things and the nature of things my life also must come to pass and even even when the pain is there and sometimes when we have our aches and our pains and our ill health, and our difficulties with situations, whatever those kind of situations may be, even sometimes when we're struggling, and we're fighting with ourselves, and we're efforting, and we're hurting, and we're confused, even sometimes that when it seems intensely personal, intensely about my life, but sometimes in and through that, there's a kind of awakening in and through that which says, Just how many other people are sharing this exact experience right now? That even in the most personal, it's rather impersonal. It's in the nature of things. And I have often loved, and I mentioned this earlier today, I have often loved very much a story out of the Zen tradition I think the biggest difference, if I may say, between the Zen tradition and the Theravadins is that the Zen people at least wrote down their stories and the Theravadins, I think they must have been all illiterate. They never seemed to write anything. <laughs> but anyway, I'm go off into a side. Thing. That in one of the Zen stories, the Zen teacher said to the uh, Zen a student this story, several hundred years old, how does... An awakened person die. How does an enlightened person die? This is the Zen teacher to the Zen student, and the Zen student looked up at the teacher and he went, "Ah!" <laughs> <laughs> the Zen master went. Thick of such (laughs) movements. The personal is the revelation of impersonal. No unique event, no self existent event, no personalized event. If there was, we could never know each other we can never be friends with each other, we can never relate to each other, we can never feel the intimacy of being on the earth together. So all things truly partake of something Mm -hmm. divine and rather unfathomable. The personal is the impersonal, and the impersonal is personal. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into themselves. May all beings be struck by the wonder of it all. Let's have two or three quiet minutes, shall we, please?